0: Time, weather, and... oh, wait. Welcome to the Jay and Pav podcast experience.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, so- okay. Okay.
2: listening to the Chan Path show Teachers Talking
0: Teaching where two middle school teachers sharing our reflections, insights about the topics that matter the most in the classroom. So hey, Path, join us in the hallway or even the parking lot or better yet how about the staff room?
2: To episode 128 of the Cheyenne Pav Show. Thank you for joining us as we sit around the table to talk teaching. We have a very special episode today with not one, not two guests, but four amazing guests and co-authors of the book Amplify Learner Voice through culturally responsive and sustaining assessment. We speak with Paul Bloomberg, Vivette Dukes, Kara Vandas and Rachel Carrillo Fairchild about this incredible book, an educator resource, and engage in a very deep and meaningful conversation about the impacts of culturally responsive assessment practices in the classroom. Before we dive in, I'll introduce myself. My name is Pav Wander, and I'm 50% of this dynamic duo of che and Path. My better half is here with me, and he usually introduces himself.
0: And let's get ready to rumble with tonight's main event. It's Chain Path. Center stage. <laughs> For about five minutes till we get into this interview, and then we'll be backstage.
2: That's when I am what do you call it? When uh,
0: when, when I hit when a home run, I say I hit a <laughs> jack. Jacked it. Back to back jacks. Back to back, Jax. And I am Che, the hurricane, as you can probably tell, Cheney, <laughs> And certainly I am of the 50%, only 20% of that 50%. And the other 30% of that is completely AI generated. <laughs> you determine which parts.
2: I wish I could say that that was not true.
0: <laughs> Pav just takes a few sound bites and just, boom, plugs into the computer. And
2: that's it. The rest is, is AI. Che, J- you, you've been replaced. Che-I.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. <laughs> and we are excited for this episode. Um, one, because I'm always like to talk assessment, not because it's my wheelhouse, because I think it's one of those spaces where I've done the most to learn yeah. about on my own. And this connection to culturally relevant and responsive teaching mm-hmm. or assessment is critical because too often, I think, when we, we dive into those spaces, path, the conversations are meaningful and important, but they're not always nuanced and specific. And I love the specific nature of this content and this conversation. Yeah. But before we get into this one, Um, I'm looking here on the agenda, and it says it's time to have some banter. That's right. Banter is there. Indicator Che begins. (laughs) Yes. Pressure. All this pressure. Um, Pav and I'll start the banter with just a little bit of what's up, what's going on with Che and Pav. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not to center our content all the time, but there's a few other projects that we're involved in, and we'd love to to share them. And, of course, this is the Che and Pav show, Teachers Talking Teaching. But one of the big responsibilities we've been sort of gifted in the last few months is hosting and producing the ETT podcast, Teacher Talk. And that podcast has got a set of vibrant, at least four episodes out at the moment. It's very local driven, but that doesn't mean the content is purely for Toronto teachers, but it's uh, all teachers in the Toronto elementary system. And we've been having rich conversation on rest and resilience, uh, the value of teacher librarians, the use of learning coaches. And of course, with the ETT president and vice president, Helen and Nigel talking about their mission and vision and what they wanted that podcast to be. And so this project is a, a little bit different vibe than the Chain Path show. I guess it's more Calm chain, no hurricane chain. It's not the space.
2: hurricane. Yeah, it's not the hurricane chain. Either.
0: But it's a, a project that we're very proud of, <laughs> yes. and, and and we love the work that we're doing there. And Pavel, jump in one more. Is that our picture book, The Magnificent Microphone, available in English and French? Mm-hmm. And you know, there's all kinds of obstacles to when you bring in language. And I think this is it ties in great with our conversation today for uh, culturally relevant, responsive. Teaching or assessment, because what are the obstacles when you try to be culturally relevant? And you know, we have—not that we have, but the magnificent microphone is translated into multiple languages. But we ran into barrier after barrier after barrier in trying to get them printed, published, yeah, published. And so we've sort of done, I guess, a, a workaround that we will house those publications or those translations with authentic translators on our website, champav.com, mm-hmm. in. PDF form or a digital format but we just felt that we wanted to honor our translators and get that content out so that people could you know, read stories in languages that are the languages being spoken at home yeah. for comfort and connection and so we're really proud of that project and we were sort of getting angst with not being able to get it out there you know
2: this is uh this is where some of those frustrations come from when doing work surrounding anti-oppressive uh, with anti-oppression education anti-racist education this is the work that we set out to do. We wanted to ensure that these stories were available to families at home, to teachers with English language learners in the classroom, uh, to not only be able to access those stories, but also to encourage students to be able to share their stories in their native in their in the countries in the sorry in the languages that they speak at home and have the most comfort with and we want to be able to encourage storytelling in the classroom and when we encounter these types of systemic barriers to being able to do that work openly and freely and to be able to also honor The incredible educators, and they're all educators that have helped us to translate these stories. They're all teachers who have lent their voices, lent their time, lent their energy to translating and ensuring that these books and stories are available to for students to access, um, it, it does make you a little frustrated. And um, we never really got gave up on this and we kept trying and trying and trying. And um, we are going to be, and we are very happy to be able to provide these stories for teachers and families to be able to access um, digitally for now. Hopefully one day we'll get to the print phase, but um, we didn't want these stories to end up um, on the back burner and forever sitting there waiting for, you know, lost consumption. in the archives. That's right. We don't want these to be lost in the archives. We want these stories to be shared, and we want students and children and families to be able to access them.
0: All right, Pav. Uh, I think it's time to get into this really rich, yeah. really vibrant yeah. conversation about Amplifying learner voice Amplifying assessment Really being diverse in our, in our assessment I think there's lots of great nuggets And lots of learning And reflection And validation to be had By listening to this conversation Look, Absolutely Tune in to episode 128 Of the Che and Pav show get your,
3: get your
0: up, And you're listening to The Che and Pav show And welcome to the Chay and Pav show. Teachers talking, well, you guessed it, teaching. And today on our show, and for our Audience watching, you see the book I have right here. We have four of the authors of Amplify Learner Voice through culturally responsive and sustaining assessment. And we have Paul, Vivette, Kara, and Rachel here to talk about this really very I show the spine, thick and in-depth and really <laughs> use book. Because I have before I, I jump right in, I almost want to ask a question right away. Often in the social justice space, I find a lot of the content to be important, but also low resolution. What, are, what can you do to be culturally responsive? And I think this book provides how we make our assessment part of our culturally responsive practice. But this is not for me to tell. It's just for me to introduce. So, um As I curate into our first question, please, the four of you, let us know your names, your role in education. And before you talk about the book, what was it in sort of you were seeing in education that sort of manifest and brought you into this space where you sort of thought this is where where I've ended up right here creating this great book. So a little bit about your journey and then we'll dive specifically into the book. And of course, welcome to the show. And Paul, why don't you lead us off?
1: Well, um, I think for me, um, as with the other authors, we're also educators, teachers, Um, some of us have been leaders um, with a capital L in the educational space. And I think, you know, we've been doing work for over a decade in schools around assessment for learning and at the core collaborative, which we all consult for and with, that was really where the work really started. And I think there were early conversations a couple of years ago when maybe pre-pandemic, where we were really trying to take, like really inspired by the work of Dr. Goldie Mohammed, and really trying to think how could we take those five pursuits and apply them to assessment for learning. And I think that was really the impetus for the work, and I think all of us really believe in assessment for learning so much because it already amplifies student voice. And really, I think when you do it really well, kids learn a lot about themselves. And I think with the peer assessment work, we were really trying to think from a culturally responsive and sustaining lens, how can they learn more about each other as well? And I think that's kind of how the idea was born. It was initially a different even book and we took um, a book that Karen and I kind of headlined on called Peer Power, which is um, bringing an assessment revolution into the States. And it was really taking a look at that foundational text. And then we brought in a whole bunch of other authors because there was not one person that could be an expert on all of this. And so I think that's totally. kind of how the book was really born.
2: Amazing. Thank you for, uh, thank you for that little bit of an outline. Um, Kara, how about yourself? What, what brings you to this, uh, to this space, to this journey, to this writing project and, and, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself as well and your role in education.
4: Yeah, you bet. Um, I started in alternative education, which I think by itself, you're already working with a group of students who have really struggled with the traditional, system not meeting their needs a lot of school being done to them not for them or with them and for me uh, this is about kids and their experience versus what education has to do for them and so I think for me this book and this work really helps to address that you know I think When I work with people from other countries, they'll they'll talk about how Americans are obsessed with accountability. (laughs) And our version of assessment is like these really like impersonal, awful, like, you know, formal assessments, not really about learning. It's like Mm -hmm. this very summative thing. And so for me, I think this work has to do with allowing kids to really take center stage and be heard and be understood before we are worried so much about achievement and then really finding different ways to understand who they are, what they bring, what assets they come with, and, and then just growing them as people and as, as, you know, learners. And so that's where my, I guess my passion lies in education. And I was a teacher and I was a um, curriculum designer and program director and, at one point I was the director of teacher effectiveness, which I'm not really sure if that even means <laughs> <But> <laughs> I was the director of it. So you know, <laughs> let's do this. Um, and then I just really started getting into the research and the practices that make a difference. And instead of all this other, you know, red tape, like, let's just cut to mm-hmm. the quick and, and find those things that are going to help our kids. So that's my perspective.
0: Kara, that's a great response. You said a couple of great things. I love that quote, schools done to them. And I was just like, ooh, that landed. Uh, Vivette, how about you sort of share who you are and sort of your journey in education, how it sort of ended up in this space right now?
5: Yeah, absolutely. So I've been an educator in New York City, both in the Department of Education and in school districts across Long Island for over 10 years. I started teaching in the city at the Eagle Academy for young men of Southeast Queens, which is a school system that was erected to dismantle the school to prison pipeline to directly address. So we're sending young men to college as opposed to prison Mm -hmm. and, During that time teaching there, I really saw the ways in which what our beautiful Black children especially bring to our classrooms, how it can often be discarded and not valued. Mm -hmm. And, you know, um, that really resonated with me and changed me as an educator. What is it that I'm really assessing them about is it about them is it about me is it about some people at the board of regents who probably don't even have a clue as to what's (laughs) going on in the classroom now so it just really changed the way that teaching there really changed the way I looked at my own practice Um, Mm -hmm. and I came to this particular book through an invitation of Paul like we met and we hit it off and we have really similar values and mindsets around what is our goal in education we when we are assessing students. Okay. And that's what brought me here and answering a series of questions together and seeing like, you know what? This this could be a book. <laughs> this has the makings yeah. of the book. So here we are. <laughs>
1: that's amazing.
2: And you know, what really strikes me is that so far, everybody has talked about the responsiveness and, and what you've been seeing in, in education and in your classroom spaces. And it, this book and this project and the work that you are doing has been in response to what you have seen. And and it's it's directly related to, uh, to the classroom and to education as it currently stands. So thank you for sharing that Vivette. Um, Rachel, tell us a little bit about your journey and how you have become part of this project as well as uh, your journey in education as well
3: thank you um, so my um, I've been in education for or I was a teacher for 18 years I've been in education for 30 years now um, but in those 18 years I was a classroom teacher I was um, you know district office you know curriculum and instruction um, and and through but I think the most important part, about me that I think is the fact that I was an English learner, a multi-language learner myself. Um, And so that is a population that has always been um, of great importance to me. Um, And I think for me, what I've seen the most with multilingual learners is the fact that so many of them um, either have felt that they aren't making growth in the system, that they aren't being successful, Um, and some of them we end up losing, um, and you know by the time they get to high school, they start to feel like their investment in education just hasn't really panned out for them, and it's for lots of different reasons. But I think sometimes it's because they don't know how to move themselves forward in their language acquisition, um, and. So formative assessment becomes crucially important for our multilingual learners Mm -hmm. learning a second language uh, or a third language, fourth language. Um, But that's really my passion and where I came into this book and where Paul and I, our conversations centered around that population in particular and how we could weave multilingual learners throughout the book.
0: Rachel, that's a beautiful response. I jotted down here is one thing you said is that our students don't feel like they're making gains, like the system isn't honoring and validating the gains mm-hmm. they're really making. And we, it just reminds me how students internalize. In some sense, we don't hear those stories. We think they're making gains and maybe we're, or, or maybe they're not, maybe the system's right. failing them, but if they are making gains, if students don't feel it, it's, it, 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 I, that just resonated with me. Now, Pav question two: the four of you, you must be, you know, expert learners, because you've already jumped and answered question too, but I'm going to frame <laughs> the question again, um, maybe for a little specifics. Could we talk about what were we seeing in education that inspired us? I think when we, we reach our inspiration, there's the things around us, that lived experience that guides us. But when we're talking about this assessment practice, I'd love to maybe just push a little bit further to specifically what were you seeing that made you think I can offer something different? We need to advocate for something different. And maybe this will highlight to our audience some of the practices that maybe they're using that they think are high-yield strategies, high-yield assessments that really they aren't. I think of myself as a teacher of growth of 21 years is that I think in year 15, I thought I knew it all. I thought I was using important (laughs) strategies. I thought I was connecting with students, but then when you stop and reflect and when a teacher shares best practice or points out something to you, you realize, Oh, wait, I thought I was doing good quality work, but maybe I was alienating learners rather than elevating learners. So if any one of you, Carol, I'll start with you. Could just give and and a specific that you were seeing that you said this, you think this works, but you know what, Let's, let's try this instead.
4: Yeah. I think I can build right off of what Rachel was talking about, about kind of that idea of progress. So I think one of the things that isn't working in education as a whole, or if we were to generalize, is that kids are not seeing progress on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. And the most powerful thing we know from research from like Harvard and Stanford about that um, comes from uh, Teresa Amabile's work is like the progress principle, this idea that like it, the most meaningful way to have, to feel like connected to your work, to feel fulfilled is to have to make pr- progress and meaningful work. So how do we communicate progress to kids? Not once a week, not once a month, not at the end of a unit, but every day. How can they have a mastery moment? Not they're masterful at everything, but a mastery moment where they go, oh, I'm getting it. I'm getting a little more. I'm getting a little more. And those feelings build efficacy. They build kids' confidence. And so switching from the traditional, like, we, I'm the teacher and I'm going to give you these assessments to my kids are building a body of evidence about their learning and then they're comparing and thinking about their evidence versus maybe some examples and exemplars some things that show them what success looks like mm-hmm. is just a huge change and it's it's empowering to kids too because they can start to go oh this is where I am and this is what I need to do next or they can value every time they're they have an at bat if you will toward what they're learning they give it a go and then we say okay what well, what can prove what's better what do you want to use this as part of your body of evidence or do you not mm-hmm. you don't have to you can just have a go or you can say yeah this is actually my best yet so i do want to i do want to offer that up mm-hmm. and at that point where kids are at a totally different place in terms of their own agency which is powerful
2: that's such a it, it's it's so poignant what you have just said. I love the idea of the progress principle and and you telling us and highlighting that idea to us and and about having those mastery moments, mm-hmm. um, because that is something and that that agency that you speak of, you're putting it back on the students to yeah. to own and to know and be aware of when they master something or when they get something and when they have that aha moment. And that's ultimately what we want as students to be the owners of, of those moments and not for us to be telling them, um, this, is, this is what you learned today, but for them to be able to reflect on what they did that day and to be able to say, you know, I did make an achievement. I did have some growth. I did see it. And I am aware mm-hmm. of it and I know what I need to do next. And it just makes that work, as you said, so much more meaningful. Um, so thank you for sharing that, Cara. Yeah. Um, Vivette, did you want to add to that about, you know, what you were seeing and and exactly, you know, something specific that you'd like to speak about in terms of assessment and the culturally relevant piece and how those two things tie together with the work through the book and through the work that you are all doing?
5: Absolutely. You know, When I was working with students in middle school and high school, and even now on the college level with pre-service teachers, there is this, um, students get their tests back, let's say, and they just look at the grade and set it aside. And I noticed that trend. There was no looking at the comments that I took so much time to write. There was no engagement. It was just like, okay, what's that number or that letter grade and that's it. And that was very scary to me that that was so much of their worth was wrapped up in a number or letter that was on a paper or on a screen. And it really did not do much for their dispositional learning. I didn't see enough of them, you know, intentionally transferring habits of learning in and out of their school their school lives, right? And then being able to practice that say on a social emotional level when they were faced with challenges outside of whatever that test was. And that, for me, is a really necessary component of an assessment. Also, why is the teacher the only one assessing the student? How come students are not assessing themselves? They're the learner. They're the one doing all of these things. And where is the room for them to assess each other as co-collaborators in a space, right, where they can assess and help and support? So... When those key components start to come into play with one another, it shifts. The whole vibe in the classroom just changes. And it becomes a space where we are all learners. That, that hierarchy of, I'm the teacher, and then you all are the students, and then you're a four. Oh, but you're a three. Oh, God, you're a one. You're a two. Like No, all of that goes out the window. Because when we start looking at things like criticality and cultural identity, uh, you getting a one on an arbitrary state exam means absolutely nothing. (laughs) And it starts to build our students' self-worth, their their funds of knowledge, because we all bring something to the learning, the education table, every single person. I don't know that our system as it currently stands highlights that enough. So that's what this book is about, really shifting that notion and the idea of who is worthy and who is unworthy and how assessments directly feed into students and families and community sense of self, right? Well, my school is this because we scored these scores. Oh, my school is trash because we didn't score these scores. Like what? Is that what makes a school environment worthy on worthy or good or bad? We have to shift this language and this thinking. So that's what we're doing here.
0: that that is perfectly stated i loved it you not that i didn't love that you brought it up i'm glad you brought this up that we our worth is so wrapped around that grade of a low resolution Mm -hmm. when that grade is just a manifestation of something so simplistic um and i love that we've brought up self-assessment and peer assessment as a way of breaking down the hierarchical structure on those learning spaces wonderful comments paul i'll come to you to sort of answer that question we've been floating around what are you seeing what did you see what's a practical thing you can see. So let's, let's dismantle this in regards to traditional assessment practice or maybe current assessment practice that just isn't really working for all of our learners.
1: I think for me, and being a principal of a turnaround school, a school that was labeled low-performing, and now being a school improvement coach all across the country, to me assessment should be a, a, a time where you get to understand what your strengths are Mm -hmm. And I think because assessment is typically always living at grade level, there's many kids that the assessment doesn't tell them anything about what they're good at. And so I think for me, it was like trying to imagine what it would be like to come to school every day because I was good in school, you know, now my two sons, not so much, but every single day getting this reminder that they don't know enough or they don't know it yet, but it just kind of chips away at their efficacy. And I think I saw that with my own sons. And then I saw that as a principal of over a thousand kids, Mm -hmm. you know, that the system is actually set up so they don't do well, it's systemic. And the system is set up to call out the areas of need predominantly. And so for me, it was like, how can we create an assessment framework that where we're assessing kids at their zone of proximal development so they see their strengths, they can articulate their strengths, and they can talk about how to build upon those strengths. And I think that really led us to building visual progressions of learning with kids so they can actually see a progression so they can see where they're at in relationship to an ambitious school. And so for me, I think it was as a parent, as a principal and just a school improvement coach constantly seeing kids after they take an assessment, feeling shame or Mm. feeling like they didn't find out anything that they didn't know before they took that assessment. I think we've all, you know, not been prepared for an assessment, but in this framework, it's all about identifying strengths. But more importantly, for students to be able to identify their own strengths and be able, and students be able to articulate their own next steps uh, with the guidance of their peers and teachers. That's uh,
2: phenomenal. You know, as a- to all of you speaking about this I'm thinking about what a huge task it is to overhaul the way that the system is currently working but what I'm hearing from all of you are real strategies and real ways that we can do this and and ways that we can monitor the progress of of flipping the switch and flipping the narrative and, and hearing things from a different perspective and seeing how they play out with the students. Because, Paul, as you're talking, I'm thinking about... You're absolutely right. Assessment is set up to highlight the deficits. It's never it's never having the conversation through an asset based lens. It's always through that deficit lens. And so how do we turn it into something that students and teachers and parents and caregivers and everybody understands that we're actually highlighting what the students can do, not highlighting what they can't do? And I think mm-hmm. that that is so important for student efficacy, self-efficacy, self-awareness, um, and, and then just having those, those feelings that help them take them to the next level rather than setting them back and saying, well, I'm never going to do this because I always get the same grade and I'm focused on the grade. And Vivette, like as you mentioned, that just becomes the identity of the student when they look at that number on the page. Um, and how do we get away from that?
5: Mm-hmm. Um,
2: Rachel I'd love to hear from you
5: oh sorry Vivette were you going to say something I was going to add one more thing and agency yeah. Cara, you brought that up and that is so crucial that even mm-hmm. as a student when that student identifies I am not my best in this particular area but I can see growth I have agency over that I mm-hmm. own that mm-hmm. and I can yeah. see my own growth There, that's not about reaching 100 That's not about getting an A. It's about I knew where I was and I know where I am now and I know how I got there. I know the work I put into getting there. That is what builds that intrinsic motivation. That is the key component of learning. That's what makes learning that lifelong journey, but that's agency that has to come from within. But if everything is Mm -hmm. like exacted upon a student and is so wrapped up into a formative assessment, which half the time as someone who creates curriculum, a lot of times people don't even know what they're assessing, why they're assessing it. It has so little to do (laughs) with the student and so much to do with so many other outside entities that... Is it even making sense? And we bring parents in like on the back end at some parent teacher conference where we're just rattling off numbers. It's just so bizarre to me, the way we function in education. Like, yeah, I just had to get that out because it was really, <laughs> we could tell. Yeah. Well, and aligned
4: to that, I think Rachel, you, I think one of your strengths and something that you bring is that you have so many ways that those that are learning another language can respond to assessment to show what they know. And I don't know if that's what you're planning to talk about, but it made me think about that (laughs) because
3: (laughs) yeah. Yeah. No, thank you. Because that's exactly this whole time. I'm like sitting there thinking like, Oh my gosh, this is like, it's, it's that, For English learners, the challenge of being able to demonstrate what I know in a way that that can show you that I've made growth. And one of the things that's really, I think, um, you know, so challenging with English learners is, first of all, when it comes to language acquisition, they only get assessed once a year. Mm-hmm. And by the time the teachers get those scores, they're outdated. Um, so the teachers are dealing with, you know, I was just that's at a school, crazy. and they're like, "We're getting the, the the scores now at the end of the year, and so what are we going to do with them?" So then we're right. basically yeah. going to save them and use them in the fall, but by then they're five months old. Yeah. So that's an issue. That's an issue. And so you know working with schools on how can we get students, how can we get our English learners timely information about their progress in those domains of language? Where am I in reading and writing and speaking and listening? Um, And if there's one thing I could say that, you know, what's something that teachers can do differently, particularly with English learners is rather than looking at that overall score and saying, okay, overall, you know, on the composite score on WIDA or whatever state I live in, and if it's California standards, New York standards, overall they were a three. So I'm going to teach at a level three. But what that doesn't take into account is the fact that within that three, there might be a one. Right? I might be a one in writing. I might be mm-hmm. a four in in speaking. So there needs we need to make sure that teachers are. Be made aware that that is one of the most important parts of teaching multilingual learners is you need to know the levels in those domains of language. And more importantly, our kids need to know those levels, right? They are so absent. English learners are so absent from the language acquisition process. Oftentimes when they move into middle school or high school, they're not allowed to take electives. They don't understand why. And they're told, oh, well, you need to take ESL or you need to take um, ELD. And they're like, why do I have to take that? And all of a sudden the realization of they're an English learner comes, you know, comes you know, hurling around at them, they should be partners with us mm-hmm. all through that. And they're deprived of-, of
1: all those elective courses, right? Yes. They don't even get yes. access to those yeah. things that might be one of those things that they're really passionate about that they could see themselves doing. Yes. And so, I think the access level for multilingual learners is less because you'll have a long-term ELL that will end up taking ESL all through high That's school. Right and still never catch up right and still same with
4: special education students right those 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 wonderful people that are supporting them are trying their hardest and they're telling they're telling the kids like well this is your goal this year these are your goals and the kids are like like they have no idea and they have no idea how to make progress they're like okay And then they meet with people and they don't know why they do things. They don't know why. Like there's so much that's like, so can like none of it is about agency. And the kids are like, just going through the motions. I guess I go to this teacher when they tell me to, I guess I get pulled out or I get, I don't know. Like somebody comes and sits by me, but I don't know what's going on. Like it's, it's true. It's kind of nuts. Like how hard the adults are working and how yeah. little the kids are informed about it. It's, it's that. Yeah. It's that
3: idea of school being done to them. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yes. School being done to them rather yes. than with them. With
0: them. It's so a reminder true. how we're constantly streaming students, even when we think we're avoiding streaming where you're sitting classes, you're providing resources, you're providing. And we always think we're breaking that mold. I think of the a teacher's like even my class seating plan is strategically ends up just streaming kids. And so one thing I've disrupted in myself is that simple thing, that something I took so trivial or mm-hmm. I didn't think too much about. I said, how is my seating plan actually streaming kids into certain behaviors or certain outcomes just by something as low resolution as that. So I've got yeah. so many notes and Pav, I know we got questions here. I wrote, I, I jotted down here, Vivette, I think you talked about this, that we, we assessment tends to be this afterthought. And I think this resonated with me is because I've shared on many episodes is that in teaching is really tough to get quality PD to teachers. So what's the best way to get it? And I, I've commented that in my 21 years, I've never had a specific professional development around assessment. Now, I've done wow. grading, uh, grading assessments to make sure that my level threes I'm giving out are the same level threes I'm giving out to the teacher before, but the in-depthness to practicing and teaching assessments that I've never gone through it and so for me this conversation is important for yes. me because now I'm going to disrupt my assessment and we've talked with Tom Shimmer a little bit and Natalie Vardabosa about assessment as well because you that you brought that up we, we don't plan our assessment so as teachers if we don't make if assessment's assessment is just an afterthought then it's not working because it's just I'll do it and then I'll assess it at the end and I think part of my growth and I think I hope many of you can add on to this is as a teacher, how important it is to build assessment in as much as you're picking your standards you want to go, as much as you're picking your choice boards and your activities you want to use to provide students to display their learning. How do you and weave that assessment all the way through? How do you connect that feedback all the way through? Cause as teachers, I think it's really easy. And maybe you could argue because you're tired. I'll give a little bit of grace on that. <laughs> okay. But a good practice is, is is as I've grown a little bit older, is making sure that. Assessment and feedback is crucial to the de- design of your lesson, not just that, after that. And I think a bunch of you touched upon that. Um, if you wanted to comment on that, but I'll go to an asset-based question, Pav. I know you're giving me cut-eye because I'm ranting and you already told me, <laughs> don't talk so much. Um, but if you're answering that question, even think about some of the successes you've seen, because obviously you've seen things that made you want to uh, change the way things are going. What have you seen that's been working? And so our listeners can maybe pick up a tool here or there to pick up. I already picked up the mastery moment. I'm going to use that in my classroom tomorrow. What's your mastery moment for this class? What's your mastery moment for this lesson? So that's one tidbit for sure. But if you can answer anything out of my rant, I'd applaud you. That's great. It means you're paying attention. <laughs> and two, what are the successes you're seeing? And Rachel, I don't think we've come to you first, but we'd love to come to you first on this oh, okay. uh, on this question random oh. question
3: all right so 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 much there but i think the whole intentionality of assessment right there's a few things first of all if we are taking valuable instructional time to administer an assessment right we we can't afford to squander minutes so if i'm using instructional time to administer an assessment then I'm hoping that that assessment, it has to have a purpose. It has to have some intentional purpose of it's providing me with information that I need um, valuable information that I need so much so that I'm taking up instructional time right and this this idea of just letting assessment kind of fall in wherever oh the textbook says I should be giving this quiz today or you know the pacing guide says I should be giving this assessment but if it's not answering a crucial critical question for you then why are you administering that assessment what information are you getting from it um, and how are you using that information Um, because that's the that's another thing is that you know teachers with all of this busyness and everything um, going on with them is a lot oftentimes you know they're not able to score assessments in a timely manner and and this is where self and peer assessment is so valuable right because we could get students um, giving each other feedback and how much more Critical or how much more valuable is that mm-hmm. than them sitting for two weeks waiting for us to score something to give me that number, right? Um, so I think that intentionality um, and being very, very purposeful in why I'm using a particular assessment and what I hope to use from that assessment to move move my students forward, um, I think is a big I didn't uh, jump in on that. Yeah. yeah. I think, yeah. on
1: that vein, I think what's really different about this work is once we have what our unit goals are that are guided by the standards or objectives or whatever you want to call them, we're immediately co constructing with kids what success looks like on day one. Yeah. Right. And so, On day one, we're beginning conversations about what does success look like for you? What connections could you make to that? And kids are getting to see what high quality work looks like before the unit even starts. And so they're able to gauge where they're at along the whole unit journey. And I think that's really different because those expectations are co-constructed. And we talk about, I think there's 11 different co-construction strategies. We are constantly co-constructing because we believe that it's a dance that you do with the learners. You know, we're dancing together here. And as we kind of figure out what success might look like, we can refine our success criteria along the way. And we can bring in kids' funds of knowledge and have them make connections to things that they already know a lot about. Like, I'll give you an example. Like, I think our oldest son, every teacher told Alex, said he was lazy, that he had no patience. But if they saw Alex surf, which we did all the time, they would see someone be unbelievably patient, have unbelievable perseverance and openness, and even allowing other kids to catch a wave because he didn't like to compete, right? Because he always would give that wave to somebody else. And so I think from the early stages of this work, we're co-constructing expectations. And with that allows our learners to bring, to access the funds of knowledge that they're bringing to the classroom. And that makes the expectations even clearer.
2: Yeah. And that's uh phenomenally said, uh, both of you actually, uh, uh, Rachel, you were talking about the, the valuable information and really using that as a starting point and mm-hmm. the intentionality. And then yeah. Paul, you took it into, you know, the, the learning that students, uh, show to us in the classrooms is, is highly contextual. So it's Mm -hmm. not going to a hundred percent be transferable from one task to another. And Mm -hmm. so how are we pulling those strengths from students in the work that we are doing with them? Even that has to be intentional. You know, I'm looking for specific things. How can I put a student in a situation? How do I know that student well enough to put that student in a situation where they are going to show their, their funds of knowledge, their, their successes, and their ability to, to demonstrate uh, what they do know. So thank you for highlighting that. Kara, uh, Vivette, did you want to jump in on some of the implement, implementation successes that you have seen through the work that you have done um, with the book?
4: Yes, sorry about that too. My my battery was dying, <laughs> so I, I'm like, oh no, I'm going to lose y'all, um, and I thought I had it plugged in, but
2: anyway right, um, your
4: house we yeah, well, my not, not, not my house this is a rental <laughs> this is me at work anyway I apologize um I so I would add so yes to what Rachel and Paul said a hundred percent and then I would add to once teachers really understand clearly like what does success look like and they share it with kids I think the next layer is that idea of like instead of calling it assessment what if we call it like opportunities to respond and make learning visible. Like how often do kids get to make learning visible in the week? Do they get to make their learning visible every day, every week, every month? Like how often? And the research is pretty clear on that. Like the more times that kids get a chance to assess themselves, to kind of like try it out, to give it a go, to look at how they did. And like Paul said, like we co-construct. So we show them models of what it looks like. To be successful. And then they can kind of look at their work and go, okay, I did really well with this. And this is my next step. And the more often we do that, the higher the learning, like the the amount of learning is, the more, the more they learn, the higher the effect size. So that idea of how often are we creating opportunities for kids to respond and make their learning visible, I think is a really important question that we've got to ask ourselves mm-hmm. as teachers. Mm-hmm.
5: Uh, In that rant that you gave, I was following your rant, by the way, just so you know, it made perfect sense to me. I was educated, like when I was trained as a teacher, I was big Wiggins and McTie. It was big understanding by design, backwards planning, where the assessment is what you start with how uh, everything I'm playing, how is, how am I going to assess students? And then from there, okay, what lessons do I need to teach to help them achieve mastery at the assessment? So I'm a firm believer in that planning an assessment after the fact or an arbitrary, like, Oh, let me just give you a little 10 point quiz for some, that means absolutely nothing. That is not best practice as an educator at all. I think also what um, where I've seen assessment work well, and I want to be really explicit—not just assessment, culturally responsive assessment—is when students, families, like there's this co-construction going on. As an educator, that those are the moments where I've really seen how assessments can build a student, not just a student, build students in the class and can also build me as the educator because, and I want to go back to something that Rachel said regarding our multi language learners, a lot of the assessment piece, it can be very skewed, especially if the educator has not addressed their own implicit biases around whatever they are be or whatever they're assessing. Right. So if you have implicit biases and then you're the one creating these Assessments, how's that going to work out? And I've seen it and I've seen it in the grading of state exams where I know I'm reading the paper of a student who's an English language learner. I understand what the student is saying. Maybe their um, subject verb agreement is not exactly perfect. You know, maybe there are some variations in the language, but I understand. And another teacher will see the same thing and say, Oh no, it's wrong. Why is it wrong when you understood, well, according to the rubric, and I'm using this voice on purpose because this is my, you're being, <laughs> you know, like, there's that piece. And I don't know how much we talk about it, but it's definitely something to delve into. What is the t- the, the assessor's cultural competence? As the creator of the assessment, like as the ruler of all things being assessed in the class, that needs to be checked, and it often isn't. And we do delve into that with the cultural responsive piece in our book. Our beautiful, here it is again, in case you. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Look at
3: it. So beautiful, it is
5: beautiful. (laughs) It's beautiful. It's beautiful. beautiful. Oh my okay, god! Okay, <laughs> <laughs> okay, you no, it is. You got to look through it. That's another. That's
3: another whole thing. We got to do a whole thing on it. I'm- <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, it is beautiful. You know, I what? I'm sorry to jump in, but I it, I just had this thought as I was talking, as Vivette was explaining. But I do, I do this activity uh, when I work with teachers of English learners, and I'll pass out a sample of student writing. And ask teachers to tell me what they see. Like, just, just tell me what you see in the student writing. And automatically, when you were mentioning this, Pop, you were mentioning how we go to those deficits. Mm-hmm. Automatically, the teachers will start with, they're missing this. They don't, they're not capitalizing. They, um, you know, they're, they've got all these horrible spelling mistakes. And, and, and then, you know, I'll tell them, well, you know, let's, let's take another look tell me what this student can do. What are the strengths of this English learner? You know, this is a a seventh grade English learner. And they're like, well, they're writing like a fourth grader, you know, and Vivette reminded me of you because it's like, according to the rubric, this is where they are. But it's like, well, let's see what this student can do. And all of a sudden they start to dig into the writing and they're like, oh, the student has a voice. Mm-hmm. Like they've got voice and they've got, you know, sequence. They've sequenced their narrative beautifully. And, and so it's that switching and changing the perspective from looking at all of the can't do's to what are the can do's that we can build on, what are the things that this student already has strengths in that we can give them that mastery moment, right? We can give them that sense of, wow, look at what I did, look at you know my strengths, and then from there, Build on those, but that's where assessment—you um you know—in that formative assessment, I think that's another distinction that we have to make and be really clear about with the book. Is we talk a lot about the process of formatively assessing students and the fact that that means that they're involved in this process from the very beginning with us mm-hmm. and they're partners with us in the process. And I think and to my- your point. There's
1: tons of really good examples on our YouTube channel and throughout the book. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. like we are just a small group of authors. You have to, we have to give credit to the 15 plus districts and schools that also engage in this work. And there are examples, like back to your point, how much um, professional learning do we have on formative assessment? We find that when people get to see the kids engaging in it and they get to see high quality examples, it's the best professional learning. So like we were really, you know, I believe really started bringing in a lot of schools that have been having success with this model and they're featured throughout the whole book. And there are lots of teachers that contributed in the book there and there's tons of principals and, and even parents and, and, and all stakeholders in the system. Yeah.
4: I think to your point, Paul and Rachel, just a, like a level up that we can do in the classroom is... If you have that seventh grade student and they had a mastery moment, the level up in that moment is not just to keep that private. If you've got the classroom culture that allows it, you Mm -hmm. share that strength with the class. You put that kid's work on the dot cam and you Mm -hmm. say, let's pick out the strengths and how look how well organized this is or look how much voice is coming through. And let's like, let's learn from this student who maybe the rest of you wouldn't think that we would be learning from, but we are because this student has such a strength in organization or voice or whatever it is. And then we say like, okay, so that's a huge strength. Is there one thing the student could do to level it up? And you can ask them what, if they're okay with that, let the kids give one idea. And then we we go on and we go back to our writing and we keep leveling it up. It's those little moves. And that's that co-construction, not just on the first day, but as we deepen learning, yeah, and we're honoring the good in our kids and the the mastery moments by by elevating them in a culture that says it's okay to have success and it's okay to honor this kid and say you're you actually killed it on this part. Like we're super excited about that. Now what you know? And that that is a huge like that kid just beams like they just sit there like oh I have no I never thought my example would be shared. We'll be like, shared. I can't believe it. Yeah. Mm-hmm
2: there's something that we haven't talked as much about today, and thank you for bringing it as up, it up is the importance of, of the culture that we create in the space that we are in. Um, because uh, something that, that keeps floating through my mind is all of this is amazing. And I know that it's shifting my pedagogy and it's shifting the way that I'm going to be approaching assessment in the classroom. But how do we shift that culture, not only for the teachers, but for the students as well? Because remember, a lot of these students it, that are in middle school or grade five, five or six or higher have grown up with a system where this isn't the case where they are not asked to be co-collaborators or uh, Mm -hmm. co-conspirators in in doing this work with their teachers and there still is this hierarchy and they have a hard time seeing them outside of that hierarchy and and in more of a partnership rather than um, you know a subordinate in in that classroom Mm -hmm. so when we talk about um, how it's being implemented, and, and what do we hope to see? How are we going to shift that culture? Or what are some of the things that we can do to shift that culture? And Because I know it takes time. It's not something that can be done overnight. And if you've got a group of students that are already used to a certain way and a group of teachers that are already used to a certain way, what, what is maybe one thing that we can do to help us flip that narrative around?
1: I think for me, if we don't honor the cultural identities that our kids, that our kids are bringing into the classroom, we're never going to build the real connected relationships we need to, to so, so students feel comfortable with change. Mm-hmm. And for me, I think it was even prior to writing the book as a gay male with two adopted sons, Like I didn't even really think being a white guy that I had a cultural identity. And so I think it was about a couple years prior to this book and really trying to lean into what that meant for me personally. I think it was realizing that I was probably violating my own dignity by putting me in a category of, "Well, I'm a white guy, I don't have a culture. I don't have anything to bring. Mm -hmm. And then I think it was my friend Metasol, which all of us are friends with. Your culture is all the lived experiences you've ever had. And so the LGBTQIA culture to me has been a big part of who I am in my life. And that was never, ever thought about. It was actually, I was ashamed of it, Mm -hmm. you know? So I think we're never going to build the learning culture that we need to have in our classrooms if we don't honor our own cultural identity, Mm -hmm. right, and understand you know, our own identity, and then how are we going to honor the identities of our kids, right, and really understand that it's all of their lived experiences that make them who, the, who they are, and that those experiences we can build knowledge from, that yeah. those experiences that we bring into the classroom are vital sources of knowledge that we can build from instead of ignoring.
4: And I think if we link that, so yes, yes to all of that. And then if we link that to what research says too, we think about the power of using prior knowledge that can more than double the speed of learning, right? So like their funds of knowledge that they bring from their lived experience is meaningful and powerful and an asset, right? If we think about it and how do we use that? And then I think the second thing I think about um, Graham Nuttall's book on the hidden lives of learners, and he found out, it's a crazy book, but his his research centered in, he miked middle school kids and listened to their private table conversations, which is gone. Can you imagine? Crazy. <laughs> anyway, but one of the things that I thought was so interesting that he heard is that kids know about 50% of what we're teaching them. It's just that they know a different 50%. Right. So if we think of our kids differently, we think... Kids are coming to us, and and they all know about 50% of this. How do I use that to my benefit versus just assuming they know nothing, and they're coming to me with no understanding? That's just such a false premise, and I am guilty of it myself, thinking my kids have never had this before. That's not true, and they have lived experience that they've had it too. So when we look at some of those research pieces, they they not only – Back up what Paul is saying about using those cultural funds of knowledge, but they also say that that not only backs it up, it helps kids learn. So why not do yeah. it? Like that just doesn't even make sense yeah. not to. And but it yeah, can't we be just... they
1: don't. And it can't yes. be they don't have schema. Yeah, they might not have schema of the dominant culture,
4: but right? But they, have, they schema. have schema. That's it's right.
1: right. Your job as their learning to partner it. to help them see that they have a load of schema right. that they right. can draw on. But we have to do the work, and that requires kids to talk a lot.
4: And we have to unleash ourselves from we have to get this covered. We have to unleash ourselves. We have to let it go and say, I need to spend this time letting my kids wonder and talk and explore and share their knowledge To before we get into learning. Because we're not the givers of learning, right? That's not our job anymore. Yeah. It's not. Yeah. Our job that's is to learn with activity. them, like the vet said before. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. We're activators of learning, like John Hattie says, and like Vivette talked about, we're partners,
3: mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Partners in the learning and, and mm-hmm. thinking about your multilingual learners, you know, if we, if we if we truly honor the, the funds of knowledge that they bring with them, the beautiful culture that they bring with them then when they walk onto that campus do they see themselves on the walls of the school do they see themselves reflected in the books that we're reading and the literature that we're reading and not just translations but actual authentic uh, literature from their countries so that so that they know and they can see you know and, and have that sense of pride in who they are um, exactly. and how many of our multilingual learners go onto campuses every day where they just don't even feel connected to that campus. Um, so that's that's something we really need to take a look at and, and consider and think about, have conversations about.
2: That's incredible. Sorry, Che, go ahead.
0: All right. uh, Vivette, I was going to let you jump in if you wanted on that one, but I, I've, I've almost run out of room for notes. I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's tough to draw up on. I, the one thing we talked about, uh, I come back to the comment of streaming because uh, Rachel, you talked about making sure books are in languages that students speak at home. And I can actually share a little brief journey of Pavanai. We wrote a, a picture book about it. But the community in which we teach Mm in English is, you know, it's the language spoken at home, maybe 50% of our community. So we went out to find authentic voices to translate the picture book into as many different languages as we could that represented our community. But then back to the streaming connection, we realized the system and many different spaces doesn't allow for the publication of those books in multiple languages. You're told, Oh, we can't do this. Oh, we can't do this. Oh, we can't do this. And like, and this comes part of that streaming. So our system, our capitalist system values the dollar and says, wait, we, we're we not going to do this in Punjabi. Uh, we're not going to do this. Uh, and all of a sudden you're like, Oh, you're trying to do the work and then you run into this, obstacles. So yeah. as you were sharing that story, I was thinking, yeah, that was, that's some important work that we were sort of connected to and then ran into that sort of system barrier. And you're like, makes me a little yeah. frustrated. Uh, so Vivette, yeah. come back to maybe some final words and then Pav will pose sort of a final question, maybe get everyone's I don't want to say final thoughts. I think this this episode, thus far, has been a real teaser. Vivette, I'm going to beat you to the screen to put this book up on there. This episode has been a a real, really good teaser on what is the content available in here, and all of you have spoken just briefly on so many of the great sections because I wanted to get more into the self assessment, the peer assessment, the the family connections to help build that. end. but our audience you've got to come and grab. So I think that you get that final comment and then we'll come back around to everyone to sort of say, if you had one thing, now we know it's not one thing, we don't want to make a list, but if there's one thing you hope a teacher an administrator, a board could get from this to say, you can get this out of this this resource, what might it be? But Vivette, sorry, I keep cutting you off. But if you wanted to comment on the last point of conversation, because I know you and I, we're the ones that are keeping up with these rants. The rest, I see Paul's cut out. He's like, come on, come on, come on. Uh, if you want to jump in on that, and then we can wrap this episode up.
5: Absolutely. And I think I can tie both in. So the rant and the final question. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Our book is really premised upon seven core concepts of culturally responsive and sustaining formative assessments. And I don't think we've been explicit in stating what those are, so I want to share what they are. It's their cultural identity, asset-centered mindset, dispositional learning, learner clarity engagement learning partnerships and criticality so when we think what's this recipe for culturally responsive and sustainable um engagement when it comes to assessments because it's it's a buzz buzzword let's be real everyone's through oh i'm culturally responsive i'm culturally responsive Are, are you And if you are, what's your recipe for it? Really? Because it's just, you know, no, I'm culturally responsive. Really, I am. How do you know you are? What's the framework for that? You know, and I'm being a little snarky because I'm tired of people just like educators just kind of throwing it around or putting like, oh, uh, a math problem together. Miguel went to the bodega, and you think by doing that, you miraculously became culturally responsive. Please stop. Please stop doing that right now. It's actually highly offensive, and you're nowhere near being culturally responsive. So if you're really serious, and I, let me okay, bring it back, if you want to be really serious about digging into this book and creating their own framework for culturally responsive and sustaining assessment, look into those core concepts and use yeah. that as a guide. Okay. Thank
2: you. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Beautiful. Thank you. Drop.
5: Yeah.
3: Yeah, perfect. <laughs> Beautiful. Mm-hmm.
2: Absolutely. Anybody else wanted to add into that or, or offer your final thoughts about the use of the book and the, the ways that it can be successful for, for anyone who picks it up.
1: Yeah, I think we kind of wrote the first three chapters to kind of introduce the framework mm-hmm. that, that, that that was kind of speaking yeah. about. But then after that, it's kind of choose your own adventure. Yeah. Like you can dig into dispositional learning, which is probably foundational. But then after that, it might be inclusive questioning or self and peer assessment or mm-hmm. how to get kids to prove their learning or deliberate practice. And each chapter is basically a book. You saw how thick it was. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. like literally as a teacher, you could kind of start to think Mm -hmm. about what is an area that I would like to improve in. And I could choose my own adventure. I could read the first few chapters Mm -hmm. and then I could dig into one and that Mm -hmm. one chapter could be something that I'm practicing towards for a year or two. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's kind of the way to kind of think about the book because in actuality, it takes schools probably four to five years to implement these ideas really well. Yeah, and yeah. so I think you just have to start someplace. And I think just trying to dig in and building off of something that you're already doing and trying to rethink it through a cultural asset-based lens is probably the way to go.
4: Mm-hmm. I think what I would add to that, Paul, because, oh, so yes, to everything you and Yvette, or Vivette just said, I think what I would add to that is that you will see impact quickly, but it, it also is impact in other ways that are meaningful. Like if you work on kids' willingness and and their skill set and their toolkit around learning and them becoming better at learning, you're going to see a different kid in the classroom. And that's just as valuable or more, I would say more, than an assessment score. So now we have kids who are excited and, and feel confident as learners and they know what they can do and they know how to learn like what's in their toolkit for learning. Right. Those shifts are the things we have to look for because just like we talked about mastery moments for kids, it's so critical that we, we use that for us as well because we need to feel that sense of efficacy boost on a regular basis. Right. I think one of the reasons we get disillusioned in our jobs is that we don't necessarily Mm -hmm. focus on that. We constantly focus on what is wrong, what could have been better and there's nothing wrong with being reflective, but there is something wrong if we leave out what we are what we should be celebrating in terms of the shifts we're seeing in our kids, in terms of the impact we're having on our students and on our culture. We've really got to make sure that as we make those shifts, like Paul mentioned, that we are noticing and celebrating the things that are really working, regardless of whether they're assessment or not. They will include that for sure. And we've seen huge transformation and achievement. It's not that... We We will. We will. Huge. But it's 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 a bigger, more important task, I guess I would say. Yes.
3: Yes. And and probably the thing I would say is I think as educators, sometimes we tend to overwhelm ourselves with these things Mm -hmm. and we think, oh, my gosh, I just heard those seven core concepts like that's it's so much and it's so big and where can I possibly get started? And I think we need to, again, just small steps, right? What is one small little bit that I can take from today and I can go back to my classroom. I can really hold on to go back to my classroom and just start with this Mm -hmm. and, 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 and start to see um, my students feeling empowered and, and me feeling empowered from using some of these practices and that success will, will, will we'll breed more success, and we'll, you know, then I'll, I'll want to, you know, build on that, and then bring one more little thing in. So don't overwhelm yourself. Pick one small thing. I think you know, little small wins um, can make big changes, but you, you have to start somewhere. So don't mm-hmm. overwhelm yourself.
2: Yes, absolutely. And there are so many spaces for us to, to start. Uh, that's your cue to hold up the book <laughs> one more time.
0: <laughs> oh, was was the vet ahead of me by one in the hold up the book? <laughs> oh no! There <laughs> uh,
2: no, there are so many spaces to start. There's so many spaces to pick out that one small move that you are going to uh, to be to be uh, starting with, and and Paul, thank you for highlighting that it, it can be a choose your own adventure. Pick that one area that, that you feel that perhaps there is already a little bit of competence in and you want to yep. build upon yeah. or somewhere where you feel that there is a real need to begin with and and there is a a wonderful place to start and i do want to add that there is so much wealth of knowledge in this book um Mm -hmm. there are so many brilliant authors that have contributed to this and we are so happy that you four have been able to join us today to have this conversation Mm -hmm. i know that i don't just speak for myself when i say that i've learned a lot through talking to the four of you today and i'm so grateful uh to to have you on the chain path show che any last words from for us
0: Uh, It's welcome And thank you for joining the Che and Pav show Teachers talking, you know, assessment Yes (laughs) And it's been a wonderful (laughs) Sometimes, sometimes Pav wrote that down for me here on the bottom She said be funny one time on this episode So that means I've been right twice, right? I've been right twice. I followed that instruction twice. through. But Paul, Vivette, Kara, Rachel, thank you so much for yes. gifting us your knowledge, your expertise, and we really hope that our audience dives right in and and honors your work with some reciprocity and purchases this great book because it is thorough. And as you both talked about, they start with one thing as I threw one more tidbit. When I sort of deconstructed my own assessment, I just started with the self-assessment and the peer assessment and brought that into my practice. So when you think maybe it's too overwhelming, Uh, For me, that was good for me. Just I started to Mm -hmm. be really purposeful in that. And then all of a sudden, it changes the flow of your teaching because then you realize that component is within the task, not necessarily something at the end. So, as I expand the length of this episode with one practical Mm -hmm. example for teachers that might be hesitant, you can be hesitant like me too. And thank you for joining the Chain Pav Show Teachers Talking, Teaching.
2: Thanks, everyone.
3: Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) So, Get your hands up,
1: yeah, to the yeah.
2: You're listening to The Chain Pav Show.
0: Yeah. Yes, you are indeed. And what a great conversation with Paul Vivette, Karen and Rachel. And if you're watching on YouTube, then you'll realize that I am still holding the book right now in my hand. (laughs) If you haven't been watching on YouTube, it was sort of the inside joke. How many times could we get that book up onto the screen in our YouTube video? And I encourage you, if you've been a listener in the audio space, because that's where most of our listenership is, take a dive into that YouTube space and see how we really look and how much I really lean on Pav (laughs) to know what to say next.
2: Like actually literally leaning on me and encroaching on my personal space.
0: You've only hit me with three (laughs) flying elbows. That's
2: right. Um, no, it's a fantastic outlet and medium for us to be able to share our content in a little bit of a different way. And you can also see everybody who we are having those conversations with and see how much we use our hands when we talk, especially myself. Um, and you can see how crowded our screen was with, uh, with so many guests. That's the most people that we've had on the show at one time. And, uh, and I'm sure it was difficult for you, Jay, to get everyone uh, to have their own spot on the screen and, and, you know, not be bumping and elbowing each other.
0: The editing component, component a little difficult, but the conversation not difficult. Because no. I think that that's probably the max... Yeah. for how you can everyone can feel that they're still contributing, dropping in little nuggets, and no real repetition in no, the messaging exactly. being sent. Uh, Paul, Vivette, Kara, Rachel, each had something really distinctive, and I think that's what the book is really good at. Is that, as yeah. Paul talked about that, each chapter can be a standalone piece that you can use, and then, of course, you can read it through and weave it all together, and I think the interview really reflected that. Everyone was part of a team, but everyone had a distinct role to which they were bringing the team. Reminds me of my baseball lineup.
2: Yeah, that's right. And we are so happy to say that we've got... Five copies.
0: Uh, no, 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 four. Keep in one. Oh,
2: you keep in one. Okay, so we've got four copies. <laughs> we've got five copies of the book to give away to listeners. So please follow us on social media at uh, ChamPav everywhere, so that you can follow along with uh, with that opportunity to get a copy for yourself to sort of plan what your year is going to be like and re- uh, like in regards to culturally responsive and sustaining assessment practices, because I learned a lot through this conversation. It was filled with incredible nuggets. It's a substantial book. When I say substantial, like you've seen it on the screen, it's a big book and every author has contributed a lot of really practical and meaningful content to this book, which can be used in the classroom right away. So definitely one that you need to pick up and please look out for for our giveaway that we will be hosting.
0: Most likely, not most likely, definitively, it will be in the Twitter space, despite us being in all kinds of spaces, and we'll probably advertise for that giveaway in those spaces, but it will be draw you back to Twitter. There'll be a space you can go find, but if you've listened to this episode and you just want to write a little review, a little share about listening to this episode and tag us all on Twitter, Mm -hmm. I'll consider that part (laughs) of an entry. Don't worry, I got your back. And you've been listening to The Chain Path Show, connect with us at Chain Pav dot com where you can listen to all our episodes you can explore the magnificent microphone our soon to be released book as well is in that space not Mm -hmm. in that space yet but will soon be in that space and if your school your district is looking to hire a few folks that want to come in and teach some podcasting i know an excellence award winner (laughs) right here beside me that loves to lead this type of pd but we are available for that type of consulting work so if you know your district wants to go big on podcasting we're here to support and you've been listening to episode
2: 128 of The Chain Pav Show, focusing in on amplifying learning through culturally responsive and sustaining assessment. Thanks again for listening to The Che and Pav Show. We will see you next time.
0: Let's get ready to rumble. rumble.